Hi, my name is Deborah Ogden and I would like to welcome you to On Brand With. Through this podcast, I want to bring you into my world of personal brand and impact and hopefully bring it to life through the experiences of me and my guests. Over the coming episodes, I will talk to a range of people I know and admire and ask them about the different ways they use their personal brand, the positive benefits it can bring and what best practice looks like in the real world. My guest today is Jason Hunt, producer of many large-scale music events, including the Guitar Show in Birmingham, host of the 942 podcast, course leader at BIM, Europe's largest music institute, and a huge guitar fan. We discuss Jason's love of guitar, having played guitar and sung vocals in a band from an early age, but we also explore once again those parallels of brand in business with a very different industry. Now, I confess, even though I'd done my usual prep around my guest, I was a little bit nervous going into this conversation because I love my music, but I'm more Duran Duran girl than a heavy rock girl and a love of guitar music. But I needn't have worried. Jason is a great storyteller. And I started by asking him when he picked up his first guitar. I um I, I was a child. Uh, we were on holiday in Spain, mm. and we went to a, a Spanish guitar uh, factory type, you know, sort of thing up in the hill somewhere, and bought a really cheap and nasty nylon strung guitar. I think I must have been about nine, something like that. Brought it back to the UK, realised I couldn't play it, and it let, it just sat in the corner of my bedroom, and then um. You know, because we're a very similar age, uh, only six months apart, um, when we were kids, if something was on TV, all of your friends had seen it too, sort of thing. And I was watching, I was supposed to be doing my homework and I got this really tiny, it must have been like an eight inch screen, black and white portable TV in my bedroom. It was, well, I know when it was because I looked it up uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was January 1983. Mm-hmm. And I was watching a program called Entertainment USA. Yes, um, yeah. With uh, <laughs> notorious paedophile Jonathan King was the, the <laughs> presenter, um, and I, he used to go around the the states and just interview people. That was, you know, it was all very American, and we didn't have much access to American stuff then. And he interviewed a band called Kiss backstage and I've heard showed. Of them. Yeah, <laughs> believe it or not, heard of them. <laughs> and he showed, I don't know, it was probably thirty seconds, a minute of them on stage. And we got to school the next day, and everybody had seen it. And you know, right. if you've never, you don't really know Kiss. I mean, we're talking full makeup, costumes, explosions, blah blah blah. Uh, and we were just awestruck. And I can remember sitting at lunch with my mates and going, we should form a band, we should form a band. 
you know, and my mate Luke went, I'll play the drums, and I was like, I'll play guitar, uh, and, you know, Gaz was like, I'll be the singer, and like, none of us had got any instruments or any training at all, but but we all just went out and bought stuff off really? the back of that, really. Wow, isn't that incredible, though, that it should be such an inspiration, and we talk about influencers today, and, and people seeing things on Instagram, and people wanting to be famous for famous sake, but actually to be inspired to go out and start playing a musical instrument by somebody at that age is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to tell you it was an overnight thing, but, you know, I was what, 12, 13, I was on pocket money. You know, so I'd clean my dad's car or, you know, I'd clean the bathroom or whatever to get a pound. Uh, and it took me nine months to save up to buy my first guitar, uh, which I bought from a department store in Birmingham called John Lewis, which isn't the Lewis's, John Lewis yeah. now. So yeah. it was Lewis's rather than John Lewis. Yeah. And and I remember it, I remember being sold it by a man in a very shiny grey suit. Um <laughs> Of an I, era again, then. <laughs> yes, and and not like I, I mean, I'm well. I know guitar stores did exist, but I just didn't know where they were. Mm-hmm. Um, and I bought it and I took it home, and then I realised an electric guitar needs an amplifier. So, so then I had to start saving again to buy an amplifier. So it was about a year and a bit before I actually got the guitar and the amplifier, sort of like from that initial discussion. And then I realised just how hard it is to learn to play the guitar and messed about with it for a bit, didn't really take off with it. You know, our our thoughts of forming a band and everything kind of fell by the wayside. And then one of the older kids at school, um, I have no idea why, showed um, me and my mate something that's called power chords, which are just kind of like a lazy way of playing the guitar. Um I say lazy. It is a technique, and it is used by a lot of sort of like punk bands and rock mm. bands and so on, which made it all a lot easier. And it was kind of like the scales fell from my eyes. It was like, oh, I, can, I know what I'm doing now. Mm. Mm. And then we kind of formed a band after that. And uh, so we were right at the end of school. We did rehearse at the school a few times, and then all of my mates kind of disappeared and went off to university, and I didn't. And I was in uh, a guitar shop as I'd found it now, which was the best guitar shop in the country at the time. I didn't realise at the time because obviously the internet didn't exist. It was just my yeah. local store. It was a place called Musical Exchanges. And I, I was walked in. So this would have been 87, 88, something mm-hmm. like that. I got long, thick, curly hair at the, sort of down to my, you know, halfway down my arm sort of thing. Leather jacket, skin-tight black jeans, and cowboy boots because it was the eighties, and the cowboy boots were outside the jeans. And one of, of an the era gu- once again. Yes. <laughs> um, and one of the guys that worked in the store looked at me and he went, "You'll do." I was, well, "Do for what?" My mate's looking for a guitarist for his band. "You'll do," and I was like, "I'm not very good." And it doesn't matter. You look amazing. Yeah. Um, so I went to an audition and I think I got it on my ability to sit in the pub and drink with them more than my <laughs> ability on the guitar. And then that, that kind of, that was my first proper band. You know, we had a, what we call a lockup, which is where you kind of rent a room 24-7 and you just leave all your gear in there set up. So um, we would rehearse. Well, we'd go to the pub and then at kicking out time, we'd go into the rehearsal studio and rehearse until the you know wee hours and then 
sort of like go home and then repeat and repeat and repeat. And 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 that I think that went on for about a year. We didn't really do anything. We didn't gig. We didn't really have a full time drummer or anything. It was quite hard. And then that band fell apart. But me and the bassist stuck together, and we ended up um, getting a new lead singer who was a guy called Andy Wicket. And uh, you don't know who Andy Wicket is. No one knows who Andy Wicket is. Um, but you know two of the songs that he wrote. Um, he wrote Rio and Girls on Film. Oh, wow. Uh, because he was the lead singer of Duran Duran before Simon Le Bon. Right, and, okay. And I, I couldn't figure out why this 30-year-old was hanging around with me at 18, 19 sort of thing. And it's because he'd been through every other guitar player in Birmingham and he was a very bitter man because he'd sold both of those songs for 250 quid each and a Korg keyboard, I think. Wow. And wow. they both went on to sell something like 14 million copies each. Yeah. You see, I was, I have to confess, I was a Duran Duran girl. And <laughs> when we had our conversation the other day, I think that was the uh, only band that you you dropped in. That, and actually, <laughs> and I think you were just being kind by uh, mentioning it at that point. Um, so, uh, yeah, I did that for a bit. Um, then that kind of fell apart. Um, it was really weird. I'd... We were in our lockup, and I'd, I'd come back off holiday and I'd realised how stressful the situation was with him in the band. And uh, I sort of I, I came back and I was like, you're an arse, I'm out of here. But you can't storm out of a lockup because you've got all of your gear in it. It took me about an hour to load it into the car, <laughs> being like really angry, um, and down two flights of stairs with huge amplifiers and so on. And... Um, and I know that was a Tuesday night uh, because the Wednesday was the day that Q Magazine used to come out. And I used to religiously buy Q Magazine every mm. Wednesday sort of thing. And I bought it and it had got, um, I've still got still got the issue, it got Keith Richards and Bob Geldof on the front. And uh, in it was an interview that Andy had done and hadn't told any of the band about. Really? And that was the most national press i ever got <laughs> that was it the day that you walked out <laughs> yeah <laughs> so was it always a love of guitar or was it a love of music or was it a love of being in a band what was it that sparked it for you i think um first and foremost it's always been music I'm not a guitarist that whittles away endlessly. For me, it's a tool that allows you to play songs on it. That mm. was the most important thing. But I also had, um, there's a great lyric by a band called Drive-By Truckers that says, um, rock and roll means well, but it can't help telling young boys lies. <laughs> and I bought every single lie that it sold. That sort of like gang against the world, you and your mates in a van, off around the country, off around the world. And, and you know, now I deal with professional musicians at all. And, I you know, I know lots of bands where the members never see each other unless they're actually on stage. You know, really? the, the separate cars that take them to the venues are separate cars that take them away from venues. They stay in different hotels to each other. They have literally nothing to do with each other. It's just a working arrangement. But, you know, that's what I want. I wanted that gang sort of thing, yeah. you know. I think we've all bought into that then, haven't we? Um, oh, yeah. You know, we've all bought into the tour bus and you're all, as you say, touring the country and it, it's the band's sort of um, a side 
effect of the friendship and the the, the tribe, if you like, whatever's yeah. going on. The reason I asked you about music, and it was interesting when you said about the music shop. So I grew up in Lancashire. And I can remember going to this huge music shop in Bury one Saturday afternoon and with a, a, a girl from school and one of her friends who I didn't know. And this girl sat down at a piano in this music shop. And again, being of the age that we are, she started playing the theme tune to Hill Street Blues. Oh, yeah. And it's one of those, such an evocative piece yeah. of music anyway. And within moments, she just had people surrounding her in the store. And I can remember the power of that moment, Uh, you know, then. It is. I think music has an amazing ability to take you back to when you first heard it. Mm -hmm. So uh, me me and Ant, um, our mutual friend, has kind of um, got a mutual love of sort of Brian Adams. And I, if whenever I hear the Reckless album, which came out, I think in 1985, I'm transported back to being in Cornwall on holiday and having a ghetto blaster, but actually only one cassette, <laughs> which was Reckless. And I can still see in my mind now as walking along cliff tops and stuff like that, listening to it. Yeah. It is, it's in, it's incredible. I do say because. Um, yeah, apart from being an event organizer and a lecturer as well, and I quite often say to the the students. Hey, let's be careful out there when they're leaving the the lecture. And they have literally no idea where where that's come from. And I'm like, Hill Street Blues, come on! Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> You've already mentioned Ant, who is our mutual friend, but he also is producer of both our podcasts. Yeah. And you are, as you describe yourself, a reluctant podcast host. <laughs> but um, you have the nine forty two podcast. So what does nine forty two? Come on. Put me out of my misery. What does okay, 942 so, um, mean? 9.42. Um, this was a couple of years ago. I was I was literally sat one evening restringing a guitar on the sofa. Um, and guitars come, uh, guitar strings come in different sizes. Um, it would be a lot easier to go light, medium or heavy gauge strings. And it's just the thickness of the actual string. Uh, so nine to forty-two is a, a is a size. So the six strings, okay. uh, the thinnest one is uh, nine, and the thickest one is a forty-two. But I don't play nine to forty-two. I actually play ten to forty-six, which is like <laughs> medium gauge. But I was sat on the sofa, restringing my guitar, and I've got this pack of strings next to me that say ten forty-six um, on it. And I looked at it and I went, "Oh, that'd be really funny if I open my show at ten forty-six." And then I went, I can't do that because it opens at 10. I'm going to lose 45 minutes <laughs> of the show time. Um, oh, actually, why don't I just do 9 to 42? Brilliant. So I, I'll open 18 minutes earlier than I would normally. Um, and so I phoned up um, Ernie Ball Guitar Strings um, and said, look, I've had this really stupid idea. How about if we open, uh, and theirs are called Slinkies. Uh, the 9 to 42. I said, why don't we open at slinky time? And they were like, what on earth are you talking about? I said, well, we'll just open at 9.42. And the guy sort of put the phone down and then called me back and went, that's genius. It's, it's genius. He said, well, how about if we give the first nine people through the door an Ernie Ball t-shirt and an Ernie Ball pack of strings and an Ernie Ball bottle opener and all of that gumph. And then the next 42 that come through, we'll give them a set of strings. Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. And it 
and it worked. So when me and Ant were talking about names for the 9 to 42 podcast, we'd, we'd thrown around loads. And then I went, how about 9 to 42? Explained why I'd 942. Mm. And Ant went, yeah, it's perfect. So that's what it is. So have you enjoyed the podcasting? Have you, have you grown to love it? I have grown to love it, as Ant said that I would. Um, it was weird. I mean, we started... It was never... Um, so Ant came to the the show, which was February 2020, to record some interviews. And it was mm-hmm. going to be Ant interviewing people, me chipping in a little bit. And it was just a little marketing thing that was going to run, run along the side of the show. And then obviously the world flipped on its head. And we held them for eight weeks of the interviews that we'd mm-hmm. done. And that was like, we really need to get these out. And I was like, what's the point? You know, the world has stopped. Uh, and then it then it became fairly evident that the world wasn't going to start again. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden I've got, I'm an event organiser that has no event. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I did say on one of the podcasts, I hadn't got an event, but I've got a really, really good little black book of phone numbers. Mm. of people that I've booked over the last 20 years. And I started calling them and saying, would you do a podcast? And they were like, yeah, sure, because they haven't got anything else to do either. Yeah, and I've they're... heard somebody else say that, actually, that this is the time to get people on podcasts mm. because they're sat at home and they're in the same situation as you and I. Yeah, and, and all of a sudden, we started off with just people that I knew, and then people would go, Oh, have you got a contact for? And I go, no, no, no. And they go, oh, here you go. Here's an email address or whatever. You know, and I ended up, ended up interviewing Glenn Matlock from the Sex Pistols and things like that, and, and Earl Slip from David Bowie's band. And it was like, this is just the most random thing in the world. But you're playing it down there because I do know that uh, your absolute hero, you actually ended up interviewing him <laughs> as well, didn't you? So tell us about that. Yes, uh, I, it's bizarre. So, you know, going back to January 1983 and the kiss thing that started it all off. Um, I, now, I haven't really listened to kiss in a, at least 20 years sort of thing. I think they're, they're very much a, a band for being a teenage boy, if I'm perfectly <laughs> honest. Um, but every time they've rolled through the uk i've gone to the tour and stuff and to the point where you know i took my daughter the last time they played in the uk and she put on the face makeup and and everything and we had a great great time um and um i i interviewed um bruce kulik who was the guitarist of kiss from 84 to 96 i think okay and that had come through a mutual contact of a merchandising company um, the guy that I was talking to dealt with Bruce when he's he required T-shirts for touring the UK or whatever. Uh, Bruce was a really nice guy and he said, yeah, yeah, I'll do this podcast. Uh, of course, he's not in KISS anymore. So it's, I mean, it was still quite exciting for me yeah. um, because that was my teenage years. He was the guitarist in the band. And then off the back of that, another contact of mine, who's the editor of Bass Guitar magazine, mm-hmm said, would you like to interview Gene Simmons from KISS for the Bass Guitar magazine? I was like, yeah. Because I, I, I truly believe that I, I just say yes to anything. Um, I've never written an interview or, you know, written anything for a magazine ever before. But I thought, what's the worst that can happen? You know. Well, isn't that what Richard Branson says? Say yes and then worry about it afterwards. <laughs> Apparently that's his great big piece of advice, business advice. Well, yeah, and that's just what I do now. Yeah, I say, yeah, yeah. yeah I'll do that. I'll be fine. 
So I interviewed Gene Simmons, and then off the back of the Gene Simmons thing, um, I, I then ended up on like a PR mailing list, mm-hmm. and I got um, I got an email through about Paul Stanley, who was my hero in Kiss, the guitarist, lead singer. Um, I got a new album coming out. It's like a soul album, like a Philly soul sort of thing, completely left field. And um, I just emailed her and said, hey, I did this podcast. I've just interviewed Gene Simmons for Bass Magazine and Bruce Cooley, blah, blah, blah. Can I interview Paul? And she came back and went, yeah. Are you free Monday at five o'clock? <laughs> like, yeah. Of course I am. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, I was genuinely terrified. Mm. I, I mean, I've met so many famous people and it doesn't faze me at all. Mm. But actually, the probably the reason, the actual reason why you know, I've got the huge rack of guitars behind me and, you know, played in bands for years. Came up on my Zoom like you are yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And how did that feel as he appeared? Could you quite... What Was it sort of an out-of-body experience? Yeah, it was really surreal. And thankfully... Um, so before we started recording, it just kind of popped up and I was like, oh, hi. And he was like, hello. And then, uh, I don't know if you can see it, he said... Is that is that a picture of Keith Richards behind you on the wall? Yeah, yeah. And I said it is, and I went and moved, and he went. Is that a Marshall amp as well? I was like, yeah, anyway, oh, I didn't know you were a guitarist, and we were off then. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it was a lot easier um, than it could have been, really. It's funny, isn't it? Because I think we do build these people up into, and I'd be really interested to talk about that from your from your lecturing point of view as well, when, when you're talking to people about the business of music, but we build them up. And I mean, part of that is because of their image and their brand mm. and they become something greater than the individual. But at the end of the day, they are individuals like you and me, aren't they? And he'll have been that young boy that was inspired by listening to somebody else play guitar one day. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to any Americans of his age and he's oh, 69 now, something like that. Right. It was that, that what was the the program the Beatles were on, uh, the uh, the one that red, it, red is it ready? St- what was it called? Oh uh, no, it was the um, it was like the chat show thing that every is it Carson or something that they all they yeah. all watched it, and you know is it Jimmy Carson something like that? <laughs> we're not doing very well anyway. <laughs> no, move but, on. I, but they all kind of they all watched that, and that spawned yeah. like a whole generation of American musicians. Um, and so he, you know, you know, you, you talked to him, and he was like, "I was talking to Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin," and you could like hear even him was going like, "Oh my God, I was talking to Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin." And and it, it's interesting, isn't it, how these things happen? Because you know, we've talked about Ant, that's our, our our fellow friend and producer, but he's the same with his Steve Hogarth. So he has his mm. podcast now. And as a young boy, he listened to Marillion and that was his band. And, and now he's recording a podcast and producing a, a podcast with Steve Ho- Hogarth. And who would ever have believed? And, you know, you talked about never miss, never turning down an opportunity. And I'm a big believer in life that if you take those opportunities, you never know where you're going to end up. No, I think that I, I've thought about this quite a lot lately, uh, given how weird the last 12 months have been and, you know, ending up, you know, having a Zoom conversation with Paul Stanley. Uh, and, I, you know, and I've done it with other kind of like musical heroes. It was Duff from Guns N' Roses. Um, you know, I've been out for dinner with him and, and stuff. 
and it and I'm, I, I truly think it's because I just genuinely loved it right from that moment it, it got its hooks in me as a early teen I just loved music I'm not the mm. best guitarist in the world I'm not I'm, I'm a barely adequate singer um but I just loved it and and I think that if you just do what you love ultimately it will come good we should end the podcast there I don't think we can be that no but I find that really interesting so I come from a world of sport and and have worked in sport and love sport and I was having this conversation with my husband earlier this week because as many of the listeners know for my sins I'm a Huddersfield Town fan and we're having a tough time at the moment but um we were talking about the difference between people wanting to be a footballer and people wanting to play football. And I would have thought it's a little bit the same about musicians. So mm. that you have people that want to be a musician and you want people that, sorry, and then you have people that want to be a global famous music yeah. star. And I just wondered some of the people that you've met over the years, you know, I mean, you look at people like, Bowie who is an obvious genius and but then there are people out there that are probably technically brilliant brilliant musicians that don't have the profile maybe the same but they've maybe been in the backing group or written the songs for much greater names yeah I, I, that yes it's, it's a it's a weird I think to become successful you don't have to be brilliant as a musician. You have to be good enough. Okay. So you don't have to be a virtuoso because a lot of pop songs don't require virtuoso skills. You just have to be good enough to play that song well, you know. Um, but you also have to you have to understand that you are not just a musician if you want to be a pop star, rock star. You mm. are... You are more than that. You are every photo shoot you ever do. You are every press release that goes out. You are, you know, the complete thing. Uh, and and I think Bowie's one of those rare individuals that fully understood mm. that it's a 360 deal. Um, it's not just writing Gene Genie. Mm. You have to look mm. like Ziggy Stardust as well. You have to mm. behave like Ziggy Stardust, you know. I mean, I've read Keith Richards' autobiography, and he and he says, and even I'm not Keith Richards, mm. but the public image of Keith Richards is what's made him famous, not yeah. the person Keith Richards. Well, I was talking about this with a client the other day, and she looked a little bit appalled when I started to say it. But um, we were talking about presentation skills and when you have to stand up and present mm. on the stage, and. She said, well, how do you do it in front of a big audience? I said, well, I, I step into a performance. So, yes, I'm still authentic and I'm still Deborah, but I'm not going out there as Deborah. It's a performance. And I said, even Beyonce doesn't go on the stage as Beyonce. Beyonce goes on the stage as Sasha Fierce because she felt so uncomfortable with some of the lyrics, some of the moves, etc. when she first set out there. And you have somebody at that level that's probably one of the most famous stars in the world that is still using an alter ego to step onto the stage, which I it, which blows my mind a little bit, actually. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I do that. Um, I used to do that when I was, a, you know, on a stage singing and playing the guitar. Um, I could, it, it sounds, it sounds terrible and really weird and 
pathetic but there was almost like a little demon sat on my shoulder going go on go on you can do it you can do it and that sort of like ego takes over when you're on stage and I think you couldn't get on stage without having that little demon pushing you to do stuff um but I also use it quite a lot with the lecturing um I mean I can remember the first morning of lecturing I'd, I'd, I'd never lectured before I'd never been to university um I didn't need I didn't need to. You don't need to go to university. Well, you didn't need to go to university back then to be an event organiser. You just went and organised events sort of thing. Um, but now I'm teaching students how to do it. And my first morning, I can remember being stood outside the, the lecture hall mm. with it full of students on their first day and my first day sort of going, <gasps> <laughs> you can do this, you can do this, you can do yeah. this. And then opened the door and walked in. And was like, hello, everyone, come on. And just like that performer thing kind of clicked over. Kicked and, yeah. and, and I was no longer pretending to be Paul Stanley or Elvis Presley or whatever on stage. I was pretending to be Dave Gorman with a PowerPoint, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I would have thought, actually, that if you're performing on stage, the chances are that the people in the audience are there to see you, aren't you? They're there to yeah. But actually, uh, a lecture theatre full of students were probably a more challenging audience at times. Yeah, and it is really weird. And, I, and it's one of those things where, you know, I started, I started off because I had no idea, right? Um, you know, I'd got a suit jacket on, uh, no tie, but, you know, I was mm. relatively smart. And then it just slid from that point downwards to just jeans and a T-shirt and, you know, swearing at them constantly. Uh, and actually, my sort of relationship with them improved the more like me I became. Yeah, that uh, authentic turn yeah. up and people connect with you. And and, and it was like, I said, you know what? I can teach you all of this stuff that's in the, the theory books that they've got. And I've read them all and they're awful, awful academic books that bear no relation to what it's like actually being in the eye of the storm on site running an event. Not one of those books will help you at all. Actually sitting down and talking to someone who does it for a real job um, is much more useful to them. Yeah, because I would have thought a lot of it could be crisis management, is it? I mean, I've worked in events myself and I know that, you know, there's such a lot goes on behind the scenes that nobody sees. And on the front of it, if you've got a great event and it all looks lovely and smooth and then there's been a lot of pain behind the scenes <laughs> before you've got to that stage. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a couple of years ago there was... Um... There was a, there's a guitarist called Paul Sayer who's in a band called The Temperance Movement, who I absolutely loved, British sort of like classic rock band. And uh, I'd booked him to uh, perform on the stage at one o'clock. At 12 o'clock, he phones me and he says, I'm outside the venue, where is it? And I went, I I'm stood outside the venue, mate. And he was like, no, no, there's no one here. I was like, and mate, there's like 2,000 people in the car park. <laughs> and um, he was at Stafford Bingley Hall, not Birmingham Bingley Hall. Oh, gosh. And then you've got that mad panic of him having to drive from Stafford to Birmingham. You know, I'd got a team of people, as soon as he sort of like screeched into the car park, unloading all of his gear to get it on the stage. And we got it, we, we were on within about two minutes to spare, but there's all that sort of stuff that no one, no one sees 
really, you know. As far as they're concerned. Yeah, but that's the stuff that creates memories, isn't it? That's the stuff that's the stories that you remember forever. Yeah. You know, I I do love, I love events. I've worked on loads. I mean, I've, I've spent the vast majority of my career doing music events, but I've done, you know, antiques events, car shows, photography shows and stuff like that. I just love them all. So what's the greatest buzz then, a really great event as you close, you know, the evening off on a really great event or being up on the stage playing? These days, it's definitely the event. Uh, When I was younger, it was on the stage, but, you know, I'm 51 now. No one wants to see a (laughs) 51-year-old on stage, not unless they've got a 30-year back catalogue of hits to play, you know. But do you think the podcast replaces some of that, the the performer in you maybe? I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it. Um, I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. I don't know whether I get my fill of performing lecturing now. Yeah. I'm, I'm quite an animated lecturer. Um, I hate those lecturers that just kind of, well, sit. sit I, I say I'm a lecturer. I'm actually the course leader. Um, I kind of get quite embarrassed when I say that because I can't quite believe it myself. Um, I, I tell my lecturers... Uh, I never want to see any of them sitting down ever. Yeah. Everybody just mm. get up. Um, you know. Because your energy is different, isn't it? We've yeah. talked about. I was talking about this last week. I've one of the things I've been asked to present a lot during lockdown is presenting on Zoom, and I did my first presentation. Sat down and thought, absolutely no way. I would never do this normally and I ended up getting the ironing board so I got the ironing board out had a standing desk and all the way through now I've stood up and presented because I would always present face to face standing up you just your energy's different you just feel different don't you you do and I like to walk around the students yeah. you know and uh, you know especially when you're kind of like you know the, the, the our universities don't do that chalk and talk thing anymore um Obviously, there's an element of that and you get in and you're kind of like, okay, this is what we're going to be studying today, blah, blah, blah. So we're going to talk about, I don't know, ticket resellers and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you kind of break them into groups and go, okay, you've got this task to do, you've got that task to do, you've got that. And I kind of like to move around the room and see how they're getting on, you know. Then I'll sit down and join their groups and we'll have a conversation and I'll move on to the next group sort of thing. Then you get them to present back because I always think that they learn better when it's coming out of their mouths rather than yours, you know. And you can question them. You know, we do this thing, you know, there's the first question and then the secondary questioning is, is if you can test the knowledge and push them a little bit further. Um, and that that's quite good. And then there'll be maybe a bit more chalk and talk towards the end sort of thing where you go, OK, these are the things that we've learned and we need to recap on that. You know, because, I mean, there's the stuff that I never knew, you know, the, the, the scams of ticket sellers and, and so on. Which is just You teach them that, do you? What, the scams? Well, no, not I, the actual scams, but no. how to avoid the scams. And... Well, it's just been a way. It's like the booking fee thing is just such a scam. It's a booking fee. No, it's not. It's not a booking fee at all. So roughly, give or take, you pay a quid to a ticket mm. seller for the use of their services per ticket. Yes. Yeah. So, so like so, the admin fee. For the admin fee, because if you think about it, that if they've, they've got to print a ticket, they've got to put it in an envelope and they've got to put a stamp on it and send yeah. it to you. It's about, and someone's got to be paid to do that. It's about a quid. Actually, mm. a lot of them do print at home now, but someone's had to write that software, yeah. you know, to allocate that seat to you and to send you an email. So it's, it's about a quid. And then they go like, and it's £6.50 booking fee. 
<laughs> no, that's just the organiser taking another £5.50 on the top. It's just a scam. You know, and then there's the, the, the whole things that the, the ticket resellers, but the ticket resellers are owned by the ticket agencies. So I, I can't remember which one. I know C Tickets own one of them. So C Tickets put their tickets on sale at 9 a.m. on Monday morning, and at 9.05 it's sold out. That's because, and, C, and I can say this because C Tickets have been taken to court about it at the moment. Mm. C Tickets, other company, has had a computer program written to buy all of the tickets at 100 quid. So then they can resell them at 150, 200 quid for this sold out event. Wow. Really? Uh, yeah. And, and it's not just them. It's all of them. They're all at it. So what are you, what, what is your specialism? It, it, it's music business, is it? Uh, I, I teach on music business. Um, so I, at the moment, the module I'm teaching is called the live music industry, which is kind of explaining to students how to put on and promote a gig uh, in a small venue because it's a first year module, first semester, first year. So that, you know, there are some students that have been putting on gigs for a while and some that have, because they're only just 18, they've never actually been to a gig because they've not been legally allowed to get into one. Um, and I teach third year's um, dissertation um, pro project thing that it's called and it's so they can either write a dissertation or they can launch their own business and I look after the ones that are looking at launching their own business really so um, topics that I've covered so far this semester are um, branding and like color theory mm -hmm. um, and, it, and it's really funny because a lot of this stuff that you'll know is, is really quite obvious you know which just stupid lessons like you know, what colour is McDonald's? <laughs> and they go, well, it's red and yellow. And you go, okay, what colour is Burger King? Well, it's red, white and blue. And what colour is KFC? Well, it's red and white. Do you see the, the, the red is a theme that runs yeah. through all of this? What does the red mean to you? And blah, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, my God, we've been ripped off. Yes, you are. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's called marketing. Yeah. yeah. You know. Yeah. And so are they, are they tending to be people, do they tend to be musicians? Do they tend to have a love of the music industry? Or, they, or they have, music? because it's a specialist music university, they do mm -hmm. have a love of music. Not all of them are musicians. Mm -hmm. um, some want to be managers, agents, you know promoters um and so on so um but with the the dissertation i just get students from all over so i've got vocal students i've got guitar students drum students uh plus the business and events students as well um but they've all it's really funny because some of them come in going i want to be the next hotshot guitarist but actually by the time they reach the third year they've realized just how difficult that is mm -hmm. and actually they've they've had an idea that would really help the industry so they want to launch that business rather than, you know, they no longer wish to be the performer in a professional sense, but actually want to develop this app that they've got an idea for or, you know. Um, you know, so one of them was, um, the, the way it works at the moment with like managers is that, you know, you'll pay 20% roughly of your income to your manager for mm -hmm. managing you. Um, but that's like a, a rolling annual thing. Yeah. And it was like a lot of people don't actually need managers mm. at the moment. So one of the students was like, well, why don't I do this kind of like drop-in service that they pay a one-off fee, mm. which I know is quite common in other industries, but it's completely new and different for the music industry. And I'm like, that's genius. Yeah. Because you've also got 
with Zoom, as we've discovered over the last 12 months, you've got a global audience that you can reach. This isn't just the UK anymore. This is There's a band in Santiago, want you? You can give them a one-hour tutorial. That's really interesting because um, I, I have a 13-year-old son and, and at the moment all he wants to do is play football and, uh, you know, grow up and be a footballer or a mm. cricketer. And we're trying to say to him, well, actually it's about what your passion is, which is really what you were saying before. If you, if you love what you do, then things really should sort yeah. it out. And we've said to him, well, you know, you're great at maths. Why not have aspirations to perhaps be a finance director one day at, and he's learning Spanish at Barcelona Football Club. Yeah. And, and it's a similar thing, isn't it? It's that still get that passion and still get that fix. So still get your football fix, your music fix, but do it in a way that is a perhaps more rewarding, I don't know, some people would question that, but a more rewarding career, perhaps a more consistent career yeah and i think that i mean that's the same whether it be professional sport which is over by the time you're what 34 35 yeah. really uh, and you know you see so many casualties of looking for that buzz post 35 and you know um well, well, it's I was, same I was, in the music industry though but, yeah, isn't it you know yeah. if you, have, you haven't had a hit by the time you're 30 you're washed up and done for no one wants to sign you know I think Noel Gallagher was 27 when Oasis got signed, which is one of the oldest people I've ever heard of getting signed, you know. And it was only because the rest of the band were 22 sort of thing. So he slipped under the radar. By being the talent. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, they're just not... It's all over by the time you're 30-ish, really. And I I think that it's a very... um, I was watching Rocky 3 last night. And Apollo Creed says to uh, <laughs> Rocky, you're a long time re- retired. And I think that's the problem a lot of musicians and sports people have, really, that you've only just got going. Well, I certainly felt I didn't really get going until my mid-30s in terms of a, a business career. You know, I'd spent my teens and my 20s wanting to make it in a band, got to my late 20s, realised that wasn't going to happen, and then kind of focused on work. Mm. Um and uh, in you know that was um and i think that it's really weird that you you would be just coming to potentially your sort of like physical mental peak in your like late 30s 40s or something and and your career's gone career's over but those that have longevity so you know we've mentioned bowie you've mentioned keith richards you know the stones mm. um what is it that gives them that longevity what is it that makes them the stars is it their talent is it their brand is it the way they've been managed what is it that gives them that success i think when you look at the stones there's an element of talent um but i I, and i i speak as a complete stones nerd i mean i absolutely adore them but I think their recording output for the first six years of their career is pretty average at best. But they were allowed to grow and develop with time, which is something that current artists don't get. You have to be a star after the first single or that's it. Um, but I don't think that the Stones got to be really, really... I don't think they became the Rolling Stones until about 1968. Mm. Um, but they had an awful manager, um, Alan Klein, who ripped them off terribly 
but he did instill that image in them mm. and i think it's their imagery that has kept them going i mean you know in fact their first first manager andrew lou goldham um would write terrible press about them like would you let your daughter go with a rolling stone and, <laughs> and stuff like that which was very sort of like opposed to the beatles who wanted to what was it the beatles want to hold your hand the rolling stones want to burn your house down were kind of like <laughs> yeah. the headlines uh, but i mean it just works so beautifully that teenagers will latch on to the bad guys not the good guys yeah. and and i think the stones understood that you know part of your job is to throw tvs out of hotel windows it's probably immense fun as well um but it's part of the job and they and they they veered down that slightly darker path than the beatles with you know sympathy for the devil uh, and so on uh, and you know, my my favourite song, Gimme Shelter, you know, rape, murder, it's just a shot away. Mm. And they played it so beautifully that that's given them a career then. But of course, their branding is outstanding. The the yeah. the salacious lips and tongue cartoon thing. You Everybody, there must be everybody in the world knows what that means. Yeah. And there's an intelligence behind it as well, isn't there? Mm. There is an intelligence behind it. And I think... I think that all of those successful artists, like Bowie or the Stones, um, I think Bowie was an exceptionally intelligent individual. I think Mick Jagger's an exceptionally intelligent individual. I think Keith Richards is an exceptionally creative, intelligent individual. Mm-hmm. I don't think he had the business now to push them through, but Jagger did. You know, I mean, they always talk about like he went to the London School of Economics. I think he was there for about four days before they became pop stars, you know. But I think it's just an innate sort of like grasp of how business works. Yeah. And and Bowie just played it beautifully throughout his career. As soon as he felt like the faint whispers of the tide turning, he would change his image up and move on. You know, yeah. never be left behind, always be at the front. And Madonna did it really well. I was for just it. about to say, Madonna's the sort of more recent version mm. of that, isn't she? And I, and I just think that they all knew what the zeitgeist was and how to ride it. And I don't mm. think you can teach that. I think they were just those people, you know. And I don't, I don't know if any of their managers or hangers-on kind of helped them. I just think that, you know... Bowie and Jagger just knew when it was time for a change and just changed. Um, Do you think that's a self-belief, though, as well? Because, you know, we hear the story in more recent times. You hear the story about stories of Lady Gaga who put herself out there and said she was always, she, you know, she she spoke in the first person as I am the greatest and I am this before she'd even got out there. And do you think that self-belief is absolutely core to being that superstar? Yeah, it's it's really interesting though, having met quite a lot of these people over time, and I, I've never met Gaga, but I've watched her documentary, and actually I think most of those people who have that unbelievable self-belief are actually projecting, hmm. and they seem to be quite shy, timid little people underneath, hmm. and I think it's, I think, certainly with musicians, um, certainly the ones I've met, that there's this re- really weird extrovert that's covering up an introvert. Mm, and and the yeah. more introverted they feel, the more extrovert their outward persona becomes. You, you look at something like Robbie Williams is famously like that, isn't he? He is, yeah. Uh, I used yeah. to, one of my fellow lecturers used to be his manager. 
and uh, she tells some really horrific Robbie Williams stories. Yeah, well, it's funny when I I worked at Old Trafford Cricket Ground, and he came to Old Trafford while mm. I was there, and we managed um, the event. And I'm just trying to think of the uh, the production company that we're looking after. It has slipped my mind now, but they took over our um, cricket school, and they were there for two nights, I think. And we we'd got it all set up that I had to go along because I was media manager and I was going along. I'm not sure how much of it was. I was probably one of the only females as well. But come on, Deborah, you can go and present the shirt to Robbie <laughs> Williams. And I was thinking, I'm not I'm not really sure I'm up for this. I'm not sure a signed cricket shirt is going to be high on his <laughs> priority list before he's going out to perform to. 20,000 people and um, yeah we were all for going and about 10 minutes before it was pulled yeah he's not up to it and and we had to have the five-a-side soccer set uh, stage um, soccer pitch set up for him and he was just they said you know his anxiety just goes through the roof before he gets on the stage and it it was a no-go but it it was a real eye-opener was it SJM I think SJM yeah SGM we're looking after them yeah yeah it's all yeah a lot of them are very odd in fact what I found is when they've reached the very top and then they kind of they fight and they claw the way to the top and then when they get to the top they go back to being normal people again it's that's um, interesting isn't it it's of the bands and artists that I've booked over the last 20 years a lot of the ones on the way up have been arseholes and a lot of the ones on the way down have been arseholes. But the ones at the top have been lovely. But then I think that that's knowing the game as well. That you don't you don't get to the top. We don't stay at the top by being an arse really. You you no. you have to be you have to play the game, you have to shake the hands, you know, and sign the autographs and everything. It's just part of the job. You know, but that's where we started with the conversation, wasn't it? Those are the people that get that. And whether it's um, in football, in cricket, wherever, they are the people that make the difference because they get the fact that you, performing these days on whatever stage is so much more than just doing the day job. And, and I would argue that's the same whether you're a solicitor or an accountant or there's a lot more to it than the technical skills. It's the being able to communicate. It's being able to connect with your audience, whether that is a, a physical audience, yeah. you know, watching you on the stage or your uh, clients and customers. It's exactly the same principle. It's just more intense, if you like, Um when yeah. you're a performer, I think it is. I think it, yeah, it, it's very much. I mean, you know, it goes back to that old maxim, doesn't it? People buy people, mm-hmm. you know, and people only want to buy nice people ultimately. Yeah, yeah. and people like us. <laughs> we all like people like us, yes, don't we? Which, we do. Which I always think music is really fascinating in that, you know, you said about Kiss is there with the teenage boys, and that there will be a demographic. And um, a couple of years ago, my, my husband and I went to, I, I bought my husband Simple Minds tickets for his 50th and we were all of a certain demographic. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is, it, people, 
form these tribes and that again goes back to that brand that people are buying into that brand and that's the power of a brand if you've got people that will follow it and buy every album turn up at every tour buy every t-shirt yeah i mean it's that it's i mean i don't know if it exists outside of the music industry but it's a thing called the thousand fan thousand fan theory and Mm -hmm. you only need a thousand fans that will buy every t-shirt every album but physic the physical copies, not the downloads, not listen to it on Spotify, you know. And and you realise actually if you can sell a thousand people a fifteen quid album, but actually that's a special album because it comes with a DVD, so it's twenty five quid and a T shirt and a sweatshirt and a mug and everything. And you you can do that every year. Which is you know, it's it's how Marillion have done so well. Um, and there's lots of other artists, you know, me and Ant are interviewing a guy called um, Ginger Wildheart from a band called The Wild Hearts um, next week, hopefully. And he's done exactly the same thing. You know, he's got more than a thousand fans. There's probably mm. 5,000 of them that buy every album, every T-shirt. And, you know, he does these Bandcamp Fridays because Bandcamp have been really good during um, this lockdown period where they know that their musicians are not earning any money. So they've... On certain Fridays in a the month, they um, they get rid of all their fees, so the artist gets one hundred percent of the money. And, and you know, there's been loads of them that have gone. I've got these old demos that I did that made this album. I wonder if the fans would like to hear the scratch demos that I made in my bedroom before they were turned into the full thing. I don't know. Let's load twenty of them up on Bandcamp and charge a tenner for it. And of course, you know, People those five thousand rabid fans are buying it every other week, sort of thing. You know, when you've had a long career, you've got a lot of demo tapes. That's it. And that goes back to that brand again, that if people, I mean, when we're talking about personal branding, you know, who's got the biggest personal brand in the world right now? The former president, Donald Trump, whether it's a good one or a bad one, whether you love or loathe, it's an incredibly powerful brand because his advocates will, whatever he does, they will stand by him. And... If you can do that as an individual, as a business person, as an artist, as a footballer, then those people will be with you forever. And I think I've told the story on the podcast before, but I took my son to um, a Huddersfield Town match a couple of years ago and a couple of the players came out at the end and walked past us and we were just sat watching and all the other players had walked past with their heads down and not really made any eye contact at all. And then these two walked out and smiled and they were the two that Oscar absolutely loved. And that's, I saw him look at me as if to say, will you ask for a selfie? And again, (laughs) being of the age that we are, I just thought, oh, I'm not sure I can do this. But I looked at his little face. He'd have been probably 10 at the time, maybe a bit younger. And I said, would you mind having a photograph? And they chatted to him and and off off they went. And they'd done, and this goes back to what you were saying, they'd done the day job. They'd done the, you know, playing on the pitch. This was the extra. And I turned to Oscar and I said, wow, that was cool, wasn't it? And he said, no, mum. Oh, no mummy and I said oh you know and sort of rolled my eyes and he said that might be the greatest day of my life <laughs> and and for me you know that that is the power in all of us actually but when you are of that slightly elevated performer then the power that you can you know in the same way that Paul Stanley inspired mm. you then he will always keep an eye on those players and their careers probably for the rest of their playing life 
even though they're no longer with town because it's the impact it makes in that moment. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I was thinking about your Trump thing, I and mean, obviously we've got Boris here. Yeah, and I, I, it's 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 really weird. Um, I mean, I you know I I, I don't like Boris. I've never mm. liked Boris. Um, mm. You know, he's a He's a liar. He's a proven liar. He's, you know, he's misogynistic. He's all kinds of horrible things. But his personal branding was so great that even if, even though everybody knew all of this, none of this was hidden, you know. He's got 300 children by 400 different <laughs> wives or whatever it is. And, and yet the Labour Party couldn't figure out how to beat someone that bad. Because they don't understand branding. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's what went wrong with uh, Hillary Clinton. And it, it's having somebody strong enough that people will buy into. Yeah. So, well, on that then, so final question. You've said a couple of times that you've met a number of people. Who is the one that stands out for you? Who is the personal brand? Who is the performer that... Made think, you go, wow, that's a superstar. That sounds really weird, right? So um, Duff from Guns N' Roses, um, I, he'd come over and he'd done a couple of shows for me, uh, one at the NEC and when I worked there, and then one for my own show. Uh, I, unbelievably, so um, Duff had come over and he'd done the NEC thing, and then, I don't know, 18 months later, I got made redundant. And I'd gone over to the NAM show in California in January, and I'd bumped into Duff. Um, As because, you do. <laughs> it's a trade show, right? So the rock stars go to it. Uh, Stevie yeah. Wonder goes every year, and I uh, now you see now you're talking about superstardom in our yeah. household. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's insane the people that are wandering around this trade show, but mm. the public aren't allowed in, so they're not bothered. It's just people yeah, there working. And so I bump into Duff, and I says, "Oh, I've lost my job, blah blah blah." So I'm starting up on my own. He went, "Do you want me to come over?" <laughs> I was like, uh, "Yeah." <laughs> so he came over and then uh, he was in a band called Velvet Revolver um, with Slash from Guns N' Roses and Matt from Guns N' Roses. Um, and they were coming through Birmingham afterwards and they said, oh, do you want to come along? And they um, they got me uh, backstage passes. I was met outside by the tech and we went straight into the back of the venue and we went up to the changing rooms and Duff went, Jason, gave me a big hug. And he went, can I introduce you to my friend Slash? And I went, hello. <laughs> and he was sat in a dressing room with sunglasses on and a top hat and a Les Paul guitar on his lap. And I was like, oh, my God. That's, every photograph you've ever seen of Slash, he's got his top hat on in his aviator Absolutely. shades. And it's dark in the dressing room and he's still sat like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's not personal branding. That is who he is, you know. Yeah. So that that was that was really funny, and then he asked me if I wanted a cup of tea, which was the least rock and roll thing I could imagine, really. I was like, "No, I want beer." <laughs> Don't let me down now. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I could talk to you all day. There's so many questions I want to ask, but uh, thank you so much. And hopefully, the guitar show is on for. 2022 is that the plan that's the plan i launched it yesterday um with a look we i we all know that we have no idea um mm. so just tell me do you want to do it again and then we'll talk after the 21st of june 
um, because we'll know at that point how coronavirus is going. Um, and it, it's probably 60% booked in 24 hours. Wow. And you've not got some bots reselling and... No, that no. You've been... it's, just, it's just me, uh, which has been really nice, um, re- really quite heartening, really. Um, That's fantastic. And, you know, you're talking about brands and people buying into brands. I think uh, that's a great reflection on your own brand and the guitar show brand, hey? Yeah, well, it's, it's been a lot of, you know, it's been a lot of hard work, but it's kind of where I want it to be now. It's, it's a lovely balance between um, it's successful, but it's not so successful that I have to bring in additional members of staff, which I don't want to do. Mm. Um, it's successful, but it's not all consuming. So I can go off and do the teaching, uh, which I, you know, I really enjoy. And I've been really grateful during this year of not earning anything from the event. Mm. Um, mm. But it's it, but it's a lifestyle thing as well. I mean, I never start, you know, well, apart from when I'm lecturing, but, you know, I start about 10, 10.30 every day. You know, I just kind of like amble into my office. Um, and that's why I wanted self-employment to be, really. You know, I mean, who works at nine o'clock in the morning anyway? <laughs> Not me. <laughs> you see, that's another conversation altogether. What's your definition of success, isn't it? But perhaps we'll leave that for the next for the next season. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jason. And it's been an education for me today as well. So uh, I know a little bit more about Duran Duran and where he came from. And and a few, I did know some of the other bands you mentioned as well. So I don't feel quite uh, such a Luddite, but uh, thanks so much for the conversation today. No, thanks for inviting me. It's been really nice. you've enjoyed today's conversation and I'd love you to join in the conversation as well. The best way to do that is through social media and I can be found at Instagram and Twitter at do underscore impact. If you'd like to sign up for my newsletter or learn more about my monthly membership, The Impact Club, please visit the website at deborahogden.com. enjoyed this episode of on brand with i would so appreciate it if you would rate review and subscribe it helps other people know we exist thanks for tuning in and i'll see you on the next episode thanks for listening to on brand with it was hosted by deborah ogden and produced by me anthony short this has been a short stories production